Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. On today's podcast, we have Tom Slater, who's the co-manager of the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust and the head of US equities at Bailey Gifford. The foundation of Bailey Gifford's investment process is to identify exponential growth companies with strong competitive advantages and visionary management teams. Tom has previously described his investment style as transformational growth and even growth at an unreasonable price. And we would love to discuss these issues with him. My name is Nick Kirridge and I'm co-head of the value team at Schroders, and I'm hosting this podcast together with my colleague, Vera German. Tom, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much for, for inviting me along. It would be great if we could start with you giving us a, a short introduction about yourself. Sure. So I have um, worked all my career at Bailey Gifford. Um, I started just under 21 years ago. Um, having studied maths and computer science at university. Um, as, as is common at, at the firm, I rotated through a few different teams, um, working on our Asia Pacific uh, desk as it was then, uh, then UK, UK equities, um, moving to our long-term global growth strategy uh, at the end of 2008, um, and then in, into the US equity team at the end of 2015, I think it was. It sounds like you've been at Bailey Gifford during a very, very exciting time for a firm that has a, a long history. Um, I think maybe we'll come on to talk a bit more about that. But if it's all right, we want to start with a little bit around process. I mean, one of the things that was really interesting when uh, Vera and I were having a, a think about this is we're obviously very different investors, yourself very growth oriented and ourselves very value oriented. But there's a lot of things that we have in common. A lot of our process that's kind of where we have similarities and a lot of our process is about human nature and about biases and how humans don't really change and and taking advantage of that. But we make slightly different inferences here. So as value investors, we're focusing on the fact that people overreact to bad news, which creates the kind of opportunities that value investors go for. Whereas your focus is more on the inability of, of the average person to gauge how different things could be, how transformational and large growth opportunities could be. So we wanted to start by exploring this topic a little. Why are humans so bad at imagining outsized or or different outcomes? Why aren't you? And can you talk us a bit through some examples that kind of bring that to life? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a a huge topic to to start with. And um, I think to, to, to start on your point about you know the the distinction in in what we're doing you know I, I think that 
you know, the, the investment industry is sort of polarized around these ideas of, of growth and value. Um, but for me, you know, there, there is, you know, who wants to buy an overvalued stock? If, if you, if you have the choice between a company that's growing or not growing, why wouldn't you, you take the growing one? Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's used as a shorthand for a lot of different things, but, but it actually, you know, it obscures the point that really what, what you were, you're trying to find is underappreciated opportunities. And as, as I sort of, as I sort of think about this, um, a lot of my thinking goes back to actually looking at historical data. If, if you look at the past 30 years in US stock markets, for example, um, you, you see this fairly consistent rule over time that about 5% of the companies go up fivefold in any five-year period. Um, now, that, that's true of the past 30 years in US stock markets. It's, it's true. The, the result holds if you, if you look at global stock markets. And so you, 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 you get this power law distribution of returns. Um, you, you, you get this tale of outliers. And so from a, from a process point of view, rather than, um, as, as many people do, starting with what is the central case for this company over the next five years, the way I, I conceive of it is, is focusing on what happens if things go right. And that is, is um, a, 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 a way of viewing the world which is quite alien, I think, to many people in investment. Um, you know, that it's... You know, figuring out what might go wrong, figuring out what might trip you up, figuring out how you might lose money um, is, is, is human nature. Um, you know, and, and it makes sense in all kinds of settings. But to, to my mind, the stock market isn't one of them be, because of this, this distribution that you, you, you can make so much more money in a company if you're right about it than you will lose if you're wrong about it. Um, and so... From a process perspective, start start by asking what happens if things go right. You know how do how might this company end up on that um, in, in that tail of the distribution? Those companies that can go up fivefold or more. And why why do we think that's more likely than a, than a company picked at random? So you've got you've got to think probabilistically. You've got to think, to my mind, about the upside. You've got, be, you've got to be an optimist to, to go after these growth opportunities. I think that's another area in which actually I, I feel like we share similarities. As a value investor, you're constantly looking at businesses that are blowing up and saying, could things be a bit better? You know, might, yeah. might I make money here? But, but at a very different end of the, end of the spectrum, um, and, and I think that's kind of fascinating, that idea of trying to flip the question the other way around and, and think a bit about, you know, what happens if it goes right rather than what happens if it goes wrong. And, and, and very few people do that because loss aversion is so, is so powerful, I guess. And I think you, you almost by definition will tend to sound naive. You know, if you, if you start talking about what might go right for a company, um, you know, it's it, it's much easier to sound smart by picking apart somebody else's argument, telling them why you know why that optimism that they have is wrong. You know, th this endless list of things that that could go wrong in in an investment, and we know that you know, we can't predict the future. And the future is unknowable. Things will go wrong. As we think about the structure of returns, if you are a buy and hold investor, it's the impact of that small number of outlier investments that really drives your investment return over very long periods of time. And so for me, the process is about how do you maximize the chances of finding companies that have that potential 
And how do you maximize the chance that you hang on to them for long enough that you actually earn that return for your clients? Well, perhaps just to pick up on, on what you just said, how exactly do you go about looking for those transformational growth opportunities? Um, how do you identify them? How can you tell the ones that will end up being those outsized returns from, from fads? Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. I think part of the starting point here is information sources. If, if you look at the fund management industry as a whole, um, so much of the information that, that flows through our industry comes from this narrow set of sources, so, you know, a relatively small group of people sitting in London and New York who, who pump all of the, um, the, the information, and research might be a stretch at times, into, into the fund management industry. So the starting point for me is that actually with a relatively modest amount of effort, you, you know, there's a whole world of sources out there that are accessible to you as an investor that might give you a different perspective on things. And then I'd link it um, directly to, to time horizon. Um, so if you're, you know, if, if you, if you turn your portfolio over at hundred percent and you have a hundred stock portfolio, then you need a hundred ideas a year. You, 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 you have to be constantly filtering through that, that available universe to find, um, ideas that interest you. But if you, if you're going to own a stock for 10 years, um, then you, you probably only need a handful of stocks every year to add to the portfolio. So the research process then becomes you can you can spend time on the areas you think are most exciting. Your shallow broad coverage doesn't matter as much, but identify the areas where you think there is growth potential. Get to know the companies, get to know who the interesting academics are in this area, um, the, the the bloggers, the 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 um, opinion formers, and really spend time getting to understand those people. What makes them tick? Where you, where you think the opportunities are. Um, and, and again, bringing it back to this idea about thinking about what happens if this goes right. Um, so that takes you to, to this point about what is, what is growth at an unreasonable price? Um, because you're trying to identify these companies that have this, this potential to deliver, um, amazing growth. But the truth is that most of them won't. Um, and, and so if if you if you pay up for a company because you you think there's that real potential, if it does deliver on that potential, you'd have paid far too little for it. Um, but for the ones that have that don't, you'd have you'd have paid far too much. In whichever direction the price will be wrong, you just you just don't know at the start which which way it is. So it's it's not necessarily that that we are, have. Um, you know, much greater insight than anybody else in terms of thinking about these companies. Um, but it's, it's much more that um, you know, you, you, you're prepared to, to accept the risk that goes with them because you know that if you hit those one or two outlier type companies, it will pay for the inevitable mistakes that you make as you, know, as, as you, as you look for those opportunities. Do you, do you think about that explicitly as you're looking through your port, portfolio in terms of saying, you know, I've, we only need to have a hit rate of, of X and they need to go up the five times we think they might or the 10 times they think they might to offset, you know, Y percentage worth of stocks that don't do that. And actually that hit rates what's important to us almost as much as the returns to validate whether our process is, is, is 
allowing us to fish in the right areas and to get enough of these kinds of ideas. Are you kind of monitoring that? And, and how do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's you know, one, one um, interesting aspect of this is if, you, if you're trying to buy stocks with a, a potentially wide range of outcomes, then, then in your portfolio, you want, you want to get a, you know, a, a, a distribution of returns that at least matches that of the index. You know, to to get you know to get some of the ones that go really right, but in doing so, you have to accept that some of the ones that, that go really wrong. And it's actually, um, you know, if, if you look at the delivered returns in in our portfolios, it's actually really hard to get that full breadth of index outcomes. You know, I think most investors cluster around the sort of median type return. Um, so you know, yes, it's it's always great when you you pick the stocks that work really well for you, but. In fact, you're only likely to be able to do that if you're also getting some of the ones that that, that don't work. So sometimes it's it's a concern to me that we get you know are we getting too conservative in some of these companies if you're if you're also not getting the ones that go badly wrong. Um, so, but but again, you you bring it back to this you know, the structure of returns. If you set if you set your process up so you're not throwing good money after bad, um, then there's there's only a hundred percent downside. But for the for the ones that you get right, you know, it's not you know the, the really successful ones. It's not it's not the five times or the ten times, but it's the fifty times you know, that that will pay for those those inevitable errors that are just an output of the process. There are a couple of points that you often talk about with your investment approach, in particular the long termism, which we we've, we've we've touched on a little bit, but maybe we expand a bit about and and that idea which kind of goes along with long termism. I often find which is the the decision to be benchmark agnostic or you know just think about what what's worth more not what i think will do better than other other businesses can you talk you know, we have a view on why we would think that was important but from your perspective can you talk about why you think it's important and why you think it's despite something everybody says it's something that's really hard to do and you don't see that many managers doing it yes yeah, it's, it's a really interesting topic and I think it, you know, I I tie it back to some of the, the the points we were making before about you know um, why are people bad at imagining outsized outcomes, etc. People's if 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 you have a lot of people doing the same thing, then as an investor, the worst thing you can do is try to replicate that because there'll be people that are a lot smarter than you who are doing that. You know, if I if I want to predict this quarter's earnings or next quarter's earnings, there there are there are lots of people who have either better sources of information than that or uh, than I do or are smarter than I am, and and I'm I'm not going to win that competition. Um, and so, the same applies I I think to the benchmark that so many people start in constructing their portfolio by looking at the benchmark and I'll add a bit more here and take a, a little bit away there. Um, that they end up with a portfolio that looks very like the benchmark. It has a high degree of overlap, and as a, when you when you have that high degree of overlap with a benchmark, you're almost guaranteeing a a, a media out, mediocre outcome for your clients. Um, you know, there's there's lots of academic work on this that actually shows this this really remarkable result to my mind that um, the the lower your overlap with a benchmark or the higher your active share. Um, the more likely it is you will outperform. So forget whether you're making good decisions, forget whether you, you're making good bets, just the fact that you're making bets at all 
correlates with better performance. Now, so why is why might that be? Um, to my mind, it's because sort of goal number one for a fund management business is preservation of your existing book of business. And the easiest way to lose clients is to give them an outcome which is significantly worse than the market. Um, now, if, if you deliver a roundabout a market return, you know, a little bit more, a little bit less, but never something that catches the, you know, the eye in a negative way of your clients, then you're much less likely to be fired. And so, you know, I, I think you get this clustering around the index because people are concerned not about investment risk, but about business risk. Um, I think that you know, f- for for our approach and, and, and the way I think about this is you know, we're trying to own the best long-term growth businesses that are out there. We, we don't look at the index. Um, we Our starting point is that we will be volatile relative to the index and we will do nothing to ameliorate that. And we, we try to be very upfront about that in, when, when we're talking to potential investors. This fund is not for you if you're not prepared to accept significant deviation from the benchmark, both positive and negative, um, you know, in, in any given year. This has suddenly made me think about something which is, is kind of slightly related to this, but, but a bit of a leap, which is um, about how you, one, a fund manager behaves differently if they're 50% ahead of the benchmark or if they're 50% behind the benchmark. So we've talked a bit about the ability to deviate from the benchmark and being active and, and the, the benefits that can bring. But, you know, we would know, I would know from my own experience that perhaps it's, it's very hard to stay consistent and consistency is the watchword in, in this, in this job. And no matter how much you try to be unemotional and consistent, it is very hard to behave the same way when you are a long way ahead of the benchmark, the house money effects, than when you're behind. Can you talk a bit about that? I mean, you've, you've been phenomenally successful as a house and as an investor yourself. You know, how are you thinking about that in terms of the behaviors and as you go into each incremental investment, what that makes you feel about taking risk? Yeah, and I, I think this this is tied quite closely to this this question of process and does your does your process reinforce your your feelings as an individual or does it help to ameliorate them and 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 i think this is squarely in in that ballpark that you know it's excruciating personally to 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 lose a lot of money on investment or to be a long way behind the index and you know the, the behavioral behavioral investing stuff tells us that that we we enjoy gains about half as much as we dislike losses. Um, but I would contend that within an institutional fund manager, that ratio is much higher. You know, the number of questions you get about stocks that are going wrong, you know, outnumbers the questions about stocks that are doing well by at least ten to one, if not more. And and so it's what, you know, how do you set up your process or how do you um, set up the environment in which you work to try and not reinforce those behavioral demons, but to try and ameliorate them? Um, so we had, um, we, we had a, a, a colleague, Dave Bojanowski, join the, the U.S. equity team um, about two years ago. And for him... We, he he he's based in the US, but he's he, he was spending time in in the Edinburgh office and and you know making sure he really understood the culture and the way the team worked. 
And he, he said one of the eye-opening um, experiences for him was that um, we, we owned a stock at the time um, and it had a profit warning and it, it fell by just over 50%. And he said, you know, he, 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 read, he saw this news on Bloomberg, you know, it's that sort of sense of, you know, panic about what's going to happen here and what's going to be in the office and came to, you know, and, and he came to the desk and there was, there was no discussion of it. And, you know, from, from the news came out, you know, that the, the, it was calm. There was nobody talking about it. There's no, you know, there was nobody asking questions of the analyst who had suggested the stock in the first place. Um, and it, and that's, a, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's part of the culture. It's a very intrinsic part of what we're trying to do. That is, there's no point in reacting at that standpoint. You know, the individual who suggested the stock, you can be sure is feeling dreadful about it. You know, the worst thing you can do is then fire lots of questions at them. It's just, you know, let's take the time to try and understand what's happened, what's gone wrong, and then think about what we do and get away from that being being reactive or reacting in an emotional way to what's happened. In some respects, that feels a bit like, you know, uh, we're starting to veer onto almost away from process or, or somewhat into philosophy, but even more into culture. So, you know, what kind of culture do you have? Do you have, you know, a bit of a blame culture or, or do you have a kind of a respectful challenge culture? And how do you do that? I suppose one of the things that makes, you know, that and, and I will I will stop asking questions in a second, but just one other thing that kind of came to mind there was around, you know, yours is a business where in terms of size and scale, it's grown very, very meaningfully over the 20 years that you've been there. Um, you know, how do you, as you're doing that, how do you make sure you retain the ability to have that kind of culture, but also some of the things you've talked about and we think are important within our process and our team too, which is the ability to be radical, yeah. to challenge the status quo. How do you retain that as a, a cozy consensus and, uh, you know, an averaging always develops the bigger you get. I mean, it's just the nature of a, an entity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting topic. Um, and I think, you know, so go back to this, this one about culture or, you know, what, what you're trying to do. And I think it goes back to this sort of North star of we're trying to identify really long-term growth businesses. We, you know, we accept that that's not easy, and it's in. And you know, even when you found them, the challenge of continuing to own them is 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 really difficult. But but what we're trying to do is maximize our chances of doing that. So so go back to the the example I was talking about. You know, for the 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 worst outcome in that situation that we've had the profit warning, the, the shares are down fifty percent. The the worst outcome from that point, to my mind is that the person who picked that stock does not have the courage to pick the next one. You know, the, we, we know not, not all of their picks will go right. You know, that, that's the starting point, but you, you want people to have the courage to put themselves out there. And so that, you know, blame culture or question, you know, questioning how could you be so stupid or, you know, you know I'm gonna be taking all sorts of flack from my clients for this, you know, if you go down that path, what, what you're going to do is you're going to push that person more and more towards being conventional and conservative in their next picks. Um, and so I think it's, it's being purposeful, you know, it's, it's, you know, we do, that's not the culture because we're all lovely and, and friendly and we, we don't mind if stocks go wrong, but it's, 
you know, the, the purpose of, of behaving in that way is because we think that increases our chances of finding those, those stocks and, and hanging on to them. And then I think to your, to your, your question about, you know, the growth in the firm, you know, I don't, one thing where, where we, we try very hard at is that we, we don't think about assets under management. You know, we, we used to we used to have our, our work internet used to used to used to have the the firm's level of funds under management on it. You know, when you clicked on it every day, you could see what the, and you know, we, we we removed we removed that, and so it's not obvious to anybody sitting in the office at any point you know, what the firm's fund and funds under management are. And the goal is not to grow funds under management. The goal is to do a really good job for our clients, and then you know if if you do that well and people want you as a manager, then you you grow over time. But it, that that follows from actually doing the purpose of the firm, which is to do a good job for clients. Um, and then I think you get into, you know, for, for Bailey Gifford at least, you know, I think the crux of it is our ownership structure. You know, being a private partnership um, with with people who work their entire careers in the firm. Um, you know, I think that that you know, we we don't have a short term profit motive. You know, we don't have a parent that's you know demanding that we meet a certain target over any time frame. Um, you know, a lot of people that run the firm have managed money themselves, so they understand you can't outperform every year. So I think all of those aspects feed into the culture and and are, are scale free or they're size agnostic. Um, I think that's not, that own, that ownership piece is is important. And I, slightly strange saying that from a big FTSE 100 listed business, but we're one where you know, as a, as a value team, we value having had a very tough period of time. We've certainly benefited from having an ownership structure where a family owns half of our business and has a very, very, you know, has a 200 year history and a very long investment horizon looking forward and has been willing to kind of in, invest in a star while it's been out of favor. So whilst that's quite different to the, the partnership structure you have, I think in terms of the stability and the kind of attitude that you have towards a franchise and towards your clients and towards the long term, I can, you know, heartily, heartily endorse that. Um, I think it's, I think it's sort of, what is it that, you know, when, we, when we're looking at our underlying investments, you know, one of the questions is what, what is it that facilitates that long-term decision-making and, you know, that founder or family ownership is, you know, is, is often a really good facilitator of, of changing the time frame of a business. You know, I guess sort of most obviously in luxury goods, you know, do, do you want to buy a luxury goods business that's run by a professional management team and, and owned by, and owned by institutional shareholders you know, for me, I would run a mile. It's 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 that family ownership and the the time horizon of of the the people that you're entrusting with your money that allows that that opportunity to be exploited patiently, and you know not 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 managed for the short run outcome. Anybody can cut sales and marketing and get the profits up, but as, as a, for a branded business, that's quite a dangerous game. And as, as you say, and, and, glory, yeah, yeah. Um, Tom, could we just uh, explore in more detail one of the things you've touched upon? Uh, in terms of team dynamics, how are decisions made? Um, does anyone have a veto power? Um, how do you deal with disagreements? Um, yeah, so I'll talk talk about the um, the US equity team here, and there there are lots of lots of ways ways to do this, and um, you know the the different teams within within Bailey Gifford do this different ways, but the way that we are set up is 
that for the fund managers in the, in the team, if they want to buy a stock, we will buy it. So we don't, there's not a democracy. We don't vote on it. It's, it's not an autocracy. I don't, as the head of the team, have a veto. Um, if, if one of the fund managers wants to buy a stock, we'll buy it. And for the analysts, they just need the backing of one of the, of the fund managers. Um, and the rationale for doing it that way, again, comes back to this underlying purpose of, of trying to find you know, outliers. If, you, you know, if, if, if that person who has the idea is right about it, then the payoff is, will, be, will be much greater than the money will save if, if they're wrong about it. So, so our bias is trying to get as many of these ideas into the portfolio as possible. Um, but it, it also, and, and this is an area I find fascinating, the, the thing, I, the thing I, I value about it is it, it, it also changes completely the dynamics of how you might discuss that idea. So you know, if, if the three of us were a decision-making group and I, and I was bringing an idea that we were going to vote on, then the, my, my bias would be that I've got to sell you guys this idea. And I'm going to emphasize the positives in the investment case rather than, you know, give you a, a, a balanced view. And I'm and, and less inclined to acknowledge my misgivings. Um, and that has a, a couple of consequences. You know, when you, when, as an investor, you know, when, it, when a company's going wrong for you, um, you know, deep down, you know it. But one of the hardest things is to admit it to yourself. Now, Again, it's 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 having a process that doesn't reinforce those biases. So if if I have sold the idea to you guys, it becomes that much harder. I don't now have to just admit that it's going wrong to myself. I have to admit that it's going wrong to you. Whereas if in the, when I brought the idea in the first place, I said, I'm really enthusiastic about this company. This is what I like, but these are my concerns. Let's explore them. You know, there's a much more balanced thing. And so if something goes wrong, I say, well, that was a concern and look, it's it's happened. So I, st I stopped being a salesman for the idea and we, we can just genuinely explore the, the risks and the potential upside because I know that if I'm enthusiastic about it, we're going to buy it, no matter what you guys think. So we can, ha we, we can have that conversation, I think. You touched on something there, which is really interesting, which we've, um, we use quite a lot, which is that concept of a pre-mortem. So, you know, the, ahead of time, yes, I want to buy it. Let's talk about how we're optimistic, how I get five times my money or how I make upside in our case. But let's also talk about the ways in which I might be wrong up front so that we're admitting to the fact there are risks with this, that, you know, can we identify ahead of time and then it's easier for us to learn in the future. Is that something that's kind of baked into your, into your process? And, 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 and how does it feature and, you know, work when we get to the point where you, do, you think you have made a mistake? And you do want to sell something from a portfolio. How does that part of the process work? Yeah, sure. Um, so some of my colleagues are fans of the of the pre mortem process. We don't use it ourselves, and but but I do. We do use something which is is slightly analogous, which is trying to think through the you know, what if this works, and and the rationale is you know you know if if your investment case comes to pass. You know, you you have to update your thinking. Things have moved on. You can't have the same hypothesis anymore that you had about the company. So, what are the challenges at that point? And and in part, it's, it's a sort of from past learning. You know, if I go to the last decade, one of the successful investments we had was Petrobras. 
yeah, and they discovered, you know, they, they, it, it really worked. You know, they, they found all this oil in offshore Brazil, it became a much bigger company. Um, but then, you know, the challenge as an investor was you know, suddenly they had to basically mobilize a supply chain of about a million people in Brazil, which is, is not a necessarily an easy place to, to mobilize that type of resource. You know, and, and you're operating in deep water as well. So you know, it brought all of, all of these different challenges. And, and so you know, we, we sold it and we, we made money, but could we have sold it better? You know, maybe if, we had, if we'd thought more about the consequences of success upfront in, in the investment case. So we discussed the pre-mortem there, but it was more around the, the idea of, so I can see some enormous strengths to having a, one person needs to be convinced and that's how an idea gets in. Obviously, you could end up in a situation with a very broad proliferation where you end up with a lot of ideas going in. But if you've got that distribution we talked about where there are some very big winners, that's fine. You just have to make sure you have those winners. But one of the, you know, as a fund manager myself, and I'm being very unkind here because I personally find it much harder to be asked questions about selling stocks <laughs> than, than, than buying stocks. So I'm going to be rather mean to you, Tom, and ask you all about selling stocks. But, you know, either with winners where they do well, where it's hard to know, and I, we know from your process, it's something where you've been very successful at running winners, or even worse, where it's something that actually is going wrong, and you're not sure, you know, how do we get to that point where we say, you know, now I have conviction to sell it, you've made it easier to make sure there aren't the psychological barriers or the unconscious biases to make that impossible. But how do we get to the point where that happens mechanically? And how do, who makes that call? Yeah. So, I mean, the starting, again, the starting point for us, you know, you go back to the, what we mustn't do is truncate the impact of the big contributors. You know, that small handful of stocks that, you know, if, if you are trigger happy about selling them because they've gone up and therefore become in some way more risky, or you, you lose your nerve with them, you know, that, you, you, the process has to be oriented around making sure you maximize the contribution of those those outliers. And so, you know, does that potentially make us a bit slow to to sell things? You know, yes, and and it's quite quite deliberate. Um, I think the the, the follow on is if if you have this structure where whereby you. Know, a, a, an individual bringing an idea, if they're enthusiastic about it, it'll get bought. What it tends to do is raise the bar for that that individual. You know, because if you if you know if I've done you know a month's work on a company and I'm quite interested, but I'm not quite sure. You know, I'm going to if it's a, a democracy, I'm going to bring that to the group and I'm going to you know tell you about all this work I've done and be enthusiastic about it. And maybe I'll be allowed allow myself to be talked out of 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 actually investing in it, but. You know, we, we have that discussion, but if I know I'm bringing this idea and it's getting bored, you know, if, if I, then I think my own personal filter starts to increase. And so, you know, what I found is that you don't get that proliferation of holdings. Instead, it's that people start, start bringing only their highest conviction ideas to, to the group. So it's quite, it, it moves the filter a, a stage further out. That's interesting. Um, and then when it, you know, when it comes to sort of, um, to comes to selling, most of the time it's it's the purchases that drive the sales for us. Um, so, you know, um, I've owned Amazon for most of the the past well, certainly most most of the past fifteen years. Um, but it's 
you know, it, it's, we don't, I don't own it because I've owned it for 15 years and, you know, we just, you know, we, we, we just shut our eyes to it and keep going. It's, and, you know, at any day you could, you could sell it and buy something else. So, you know, what, what's important to me in terms of the sell discipline is ensuring that you have that pipeline of ideas coming through that competition for capital. And, you know, that I will, I will sell some Amazon if I think the risk adjusted return offered by something else is more compelling. And I, and I think that's what keeps you honest and keeps you disciplined about the ones either that have achieved their potential and therefore the, the valuation or where the, the investment case, you know, the, the hypothesis that you had has been undermined in some way, you know, and, and, and if, if your attention goes towards this next new idea rather than rewriting the hypothesis that you had for this company that hasn't worked, then I think it tells you something about, about your own beliefs. I think it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to have this conversation. I, I'm struck about, you know, the, the holding size. There are so many things that actually, weirdly, for value and growth investors, we have in common. You know, the long-term holdings, the behavioral challenge of consensus, the benchmark, you know, unaware nature. But there are a couple of areas where we, we differ. And one you've just highlighted there, which was particularly around running winners and position sizes, Another area I think where we might be slightly different, and, and it's one where I've personally got, you know, I wax and wane about the importance of this, or not the importance of it, my ability to do it is in the management meetings and the identifying of the mercurial geniuses and so on and so forth, because I, I worry sometimes that it's a, this is a, there's a lot of hindsight that goes on in investing, but this is a, a classic area for hindsight where, you know, we all look back at a, a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk and say, God, they were geniuses but the false positives are ignored. So, you know, there are many businesses that had people that were also seemingly very clever and mercurial and, you know, they went on to be WeWorks and not, uh, and not Amazons. So can you talk a little bit about what you get out of management meetings, what you're, look, what you're looking to specifically try and get out of those meetings and, and how you factor that into the decision-making process to buy? Yeah. Um, so I think... I'd, I'd start by going back to, to one of, a, a couple of questions ago about talking about you know, what is it that facilitates long-term decision making in the business. You know, if if you look at some of these um, you know, decade or multi-decade growth stories, I think you know it's it part of that has been driven by a willingness to invest in future opportunities and you know, deliberately depress profits over the next. 12, 18 months to invest in things that have a longer term payoff. And, and so, you know, I, the starting point for me, I think in assessing the, 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 the management or the culture of a firm is what is it about, about that company that facilitates that, that type of, of decision-making, you know, are they, are they prepared to announce that profits weren't, aren't what they're going to, you know, aren't what they, they were hoping because they're investing in X, Y, Z project and take the share price punishment that comes with that um, in the short term because it creates these opportunities. Um, and then I think that you know, we're, we're, we're really fortunate um, to be investing in, in a number of companies that are, are run by visionaries, run by geniuses. And you know, we, we definitely are not those things. So actually just, you know, the, you know, one of the advantages of the buy and hold strategy, I think, is that you get to spend time with these people. And 
if you aren't interested in this year's earnings or, 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 or next year's earnings, and you don't want to talk about what the current metrics are, but actually want to explore what their ideas are for the next five or 10 years, you know, what they think is important and actually just you know, the, the, getting that opportunity to hear them talk about it and then feeding some of those ideas back into your own investment process, I think is, you know, is, is a really valuable source of insights. Um, so, you know, let's take, take an example. So, um, um, Bezos at, at Amazon, you know, the, that you know, we've all been, um, or, or at least we have been sort of thinking a lot about, um, gaming over, over the past, let's say three, five years. And the way that the business model of gaming is, is transitioning from, you know, buying these, these these expensive video games and and expensive hardware um, to to a, to an environment which is much more about an ongoing subscription business. Um, it's about um, esports and and watching people play video games and all of these sort of things. Now you know, we've got there in the past three or five years. You know, Bezos at Amazon bought Twitch what ten years ago, which is the the, the dominant media asset in this area. You know. As he's he's been so far ahead of, of of everybody else, so just actually trying to channel a bit of that vision into what you're doing and the areas that you go looking for growth, I think, can be extremely valuable. Tom, this has been a very interesting conversation, um, and now we'd like to ask you two questions that we ask of every guest on the podcast. Uh, the first one is: uh, Could you tell us about a book you are reading or have been reading that you have enjoyed particularly, and why? Um, so I, when I think about our, our investment process, um, one, one thing that's important to me is that we're away from the noise of, of markets and to being in Edinburgh, you know, our physical distance, um, from, from the, from financial centers was something of, of value. It allowed us to not get caught up in whatever the topic of the day was. And as as we've been through um, lockdown and everybody's moved to online and 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 Zoom, you know, one of one thing that's been on my mind is that that we get sucked towards you know the, a, a more rapid pace of work that we are easily contactable that we we were having the same meetings as everybody else again back to these sources of information, and so one thing that's been on my mind is is how do you counter that and 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 so one of the things I've set up is is book club. And you know, it's a it, anybody who wants to to join it. We 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 will choose a book for the month, and um, we'll get to the, get to the end of the month and have a meeting and talk about it. And you know, it's valuable because it's encouraging people to to read. It's valuable because it's saying you know don't do the things that you know there are. You know, if 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 you can judge every task by both its its importance and its priority. Don't focus always on the things that are high priority. There are other things that are more important. And, and one of those things is think about different sources of information. So get, get away from this pace of Zoom life and go read a book. Um, and so getting through this to answer the question, the, one of the ones that we've read recently was How Nature Works uh, by Perbach. And um, I, think, I think it's really interesting because it's, what it's talking about is... Um, self-organized criticality so it's 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 a it's a, it's a characteristic of complex networks and 
you know, it, it looks to be a driving force in all sorts of systems from evolution to earthquakes to, to traffic jams. And um, as a way of understanding complex systems, as a way of understanding that extreme outcomes are just a characteristic of the system, not something to be excluded when you're, when you're, when you're trying to do your analysis. I, I, I think it's a, a fascinating read. It's definitely one to add to the list. Um, I'll have to reorder my reading pile because it's invariably much bigger than can get read. Um, as is mine. As I, is mine. I, think, I, I think book club is a wonderful idea. And, and the idea of, of having that, of, of carving out space to read and to, to consume information in that way, I think is, is so important. So that's a, that, that's a great shout. It's sending the message that it's important. And then I think one of the other things is, you know, if you read a book, but you don't talk about it with anybody, it's very easy for it to go in one ear and out the other. Um, well, as for me, I, I do it through Audible rather than actually reading the physical book. But but, <laughs> um, but but actually having that conversation about it and sharing the ideas with other people, I think it helps consolidate it in your head. And I, I think that's totally right. I once had a friend who, um, he got very bored with me reading books and then waxing lyrical about them because uh, they had about 74 different things and they were great. And he said, you know, if you could take 2%, 1% or 2% from every book you read in five yeah. years, you'd be a radically more happy, better, efficient person. So what is that one thing that you're taking from, from this book? And I always remember that at the end of the book to just try and it's a, you know, just try and it's, it's horrible to sum it up in such a short way, but what thing are you taking away? And it's a kind of, it's a lovely kind of um, discipline, if you like. Um, we, we also wanted to ask the other question that we always ask of, of, of all our guests on the pod is an example of a bad decision that either you've made or, or you've seen others make where the outcome was due to what you think is a bad process rather than just bad luck? One, um, one that's been on my mind recently is um, Atlassian. So this is a, a collaboration tool for software developers. Um, and I knew it as a, a private company, um, sort of I knew, the, knew, the, knew the management team, knew the approach, um, and looked at it at the IPO and decided not to, not to buy it. Um, and that IPO was uh, December 2015. Um, at the time it was, uh, at the time it was worth about $4 billion. Uh, today it's worth eighty-five billion dollars. So, um, what's that? Fifteen x? I don't know. And I, I, I was looking back at the 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 meeting note, and starts with there's a general adm admiration for the business model um, and the culture. You know, these things we really look for, and then we struggle to see how we make a lot of money from this starting point. <laughs> so, I, I think that that you know. Again, it goes back to the sort of process. It's you know, if if you think there's something about the company and about its approach and about the potential, um, then you you want to be less worried about the starting valuation. It may be that you just can't. You, your imagination just isn't good enough about what the potential upside is. I think it's really interesting that it's you know we talked at the very start of the pod about loss aversion being very powerful with people, but. Um, you know, with the kind of stocks you're looking at, the losses, you know, it's it's the opportunity cost that's been lost rather than 
the actual capital loss. And I think that's that's fascinating. It's been hugely enjoyable talking to you, Tom. Thank you very much for taking the time uh, to come and speak to Vera and myself. We've enjoyed it, seeing the similarities, exploring some of the differences, and I, hopefully people who have listened will learn a lot. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me.